Thank you, Bill. That was a wonderful song with wonderful lyrics and great to have you sing it today. Powerful meaning in that. I invite the children to be dismissed to junior church at this point. Uh, Children may make their way to junior church. And in two weeks, just two weeks, we're going to have the children's Christmas program. So I hope you, like me, are looking forward to that. You know, the Christmas season has just begun. And so I'm going to start a sermon series here in just a minute on who Jesus is. It's going to be a three-part sermon series dealing with who Jesus was and who Jesus is and who Jesus eternally shall be. First there, first though, I want to talk about a pastor who bought a horse. I know, like who would want a horse, right? I would love a horse, but anyways, this pastor bought a horse and he trained it to respond. He trained it to respond to praise the Lord, meaning giddy up, and hallelujah, meaning whoa. Every time he said, praise the Lord, the horse took off running. And hallelujah, every time he said hallelujah, the horse would stop. One day he was out with the horse when it went crazy running toward a cliff. In the midst of the panic, he couldn't remember what he had taught it. He, he said everything there was to be said, but the horse wouldn't stop. Just at the last minute, he said hallelujah, and the horse stopped a few inches from the cliff. He was so relieved and glad for his life. He said, praise the Lord. (laughs) Which meant giddy up. (laughs) But we are here and we do praise the Lord, don't we? And we praise the Lord for Jesus. And I want to get into who Jesus is. Can you share with me one of your favorite Christmas movies? Just shout it out. Or books. Books count. It's a Wonderful Life. I knew you would say that. It's a Wonderful Life. White Christmas. Just watched that with their kids a few days ago. Other favorite Christmas movies? Christmas Vacation. Okay. What? The Miser Brothers Christmas. I don't know that one. Okay. A Christmas story. Of course, you got to have a Christmas story. An elf, right? Elf. The Grinch. The Grinch, right? Mirror. <laughs> Miracle on 34th Street, and then we got Die Hard, and the first two Die Hard movies do take place at Christmas time. Okay, we've named several. I did hear a Christmas Carol. Anybody like a Christmas Carol? The Charles Dickens one? Well, you know, we did hear, we did hear It's a Wonderful Life, right? Frank Capra's It's a Wonderful Life. How many of us have seen it's a Wonderful Life. Raise your hand. Wonderful, timeless movie. From what I understand, it didn't even do well when it first came out. It didn't do well. Neither did A Christmas Story, the Red Rider BB gun uh, movie, and both of them are really popular now uh, today. And one person writes about It's a Wonderful Life. They write, Hollywood rarely aids the life of the mind, and in truth, the movie's theology is really messed up. But when it comes to the importance of historical context, this film, It's a Wonderful Life, gets it right. Now, what does it mean by, what does this author mean by historical context? Most of the movie of It's a Wonderful Life is narrated by the angels, right? They are talking about the background of George Bailey. They're giving all the background of George Bailey, and then eventually Clarence the angel comes down and enters George Bailey's life to rescue him, really, from what's going on. But most of the the movie is giving context, giving context. 
Now, why does that matter? Because I was thinking about an intro to who is Jesus? Who was Jesus? And in It's a Wonderful Life, what are they doing? They're talking about who was George Bailey. They're starting when he was a child, and he's going down and rescuing his brother in this sledding accident, and he loses hearing in one ear because of that. And then he, he keeps the pharmacist from losing his job, even though the pharmacist was, I think, even yelled at him about that. And, you know, it's all about who George Bailey was. And today I want to get into, it's the first Sunday of Advent, and the term Advent has the idea of waiting or expecting. They're waiting for the Christ. They're waiting for the Messiah. They're waiting for the anointed king to come. We celebrate Jesus' birth during the Advent season. And so for the next few weeks, I want to talk about Jesus. Now, we talk about Jesus all the time, right? Hopefully every Sunday we talk about Jesus. But for the next few weeks, the next um, three parts to this sermon, I want to talk about Jesus, his eternal past, and today I want to talk about Jesus in the Old Testament. I want to show you that Jesus didn't have his beginning in the New Testament. The New Testament was not Jesus' beginning. Further, I want to show you some prophetic passages about Jesus in the Old Testament. Jesus was not an afterthought. God knew what he was doing. And then today I want you to reflect on your view of Jesus. I hope and pray that all of us, for all of us, our view of Jesus is bigger than a baby in a manger. I hope your view of Jesus, our view of Jesus, shapes a reality that Jesus is Lord of our life. That Jesus is Lord of our life. So my theme today, and we're going to go to Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20, because it's one of the best passages to talk about Jesus going back to the Old Testament. But for the next few weeks, we're actually going to jump all over the Bible. We're going to do a little bit of Bible, Bible aerobics, because all, you know, this is doing systematic theology. We're in a systematic way looking at all these different scriptures that address who Jesus is and who Jesus was and who Jesus ever shall be. Because Jesus exists eternally. He's outside of time. He's a beginning of the end. The Alpha and Omega. He's outside. He never was created. He never had a beginning. When he became a baby in a manger, that was just his incarnation. That was just when, when he took on a, a, a human being, becoming a human being. So my theme today is Jesus is outside of time. Eternally active. The creator and sustainer of everything. Jesus is outside of time. Eternally active, the creator and sustainer of everything. If you've turned there, uh, look with me at Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. In verse 15, it begins with the pronoun he, and this is referring to Jesus. It's referring to Jesus. He, which is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. 
and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. It's all about Jesus. And hopefully for our lives, for our Christmas season, for everything we do, it's also all about Jesus. In verse 15, which mainly we're going to park on the first two verses right here, there's so much here. Next Christmas season, maybe I should have like a five-week sermon series just on one week for each of these verses. There's so much depth and content here about Jesus. So much what we would call Christology, which is a theology of who Christ is. There's so much here. He is the image of the invisible God, the son of God. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. We see two things here. Well, we see lots here. But the first two that I don't didn't plan on even sharing. We see here that the son is the image of the invisible God, which also means that the Lord is invisible. Jesus said, the Lord is spirit, and those who worship him will worship him in spirit and in truth. And right here, Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, says the Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. Jesus told the disciples in John chapter 14, you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus is the Son. Jesus is who this text is written about. And Jesus is the image, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus was and is the visible representation of God the Father. In Hebrews, I'm sure you're thinking of this verse right now. In Hebrews chapter one, verse three, Jesus is called the radiance of God's glory in the exact representation of his being. So there's a correlating passage. Jesus is called the radiance of God's glory in the exact representation of his being. This text further says that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. What does that mean? Does that mean that Jesus was actually born? And as I'm sure most of you know, and it's okay if you don't know yet, no, that's not what this means. This is figuratively using the adjective firstborn. It's figurative. This passage is saying that Jesus has the right, the privileges of the firstborn. In that society, generally the firstborn had different rights and privileges than the rest. This idea goes all the way back to the Old Testament when Jacob deceived Esau out of his birthright. And that is in Genesis 27. Jesus has all the rights and privileges of a firstborn son. This means Jesus has all the authority over all creation. He has the authority over all creation. Just like a firstborn would have an inheritance right. He wasn't born. Jesus was never born. We're going to build on that idea later in this sermon and the next few weeks. Look with me at uh, verse 16. In Jesus, all things were created. Things in heaven and earth. And it goes on. If things were created by Jesus... That means Jesus was not born. He is the creator of everything. How big is your view of Jesus? He is the creator and sustainer of everything. How big is our view of Jesus? How amazing is Jesus to us? How submissive are we to the lordship of Jesus in our life? 
Look with me at John chapter one, verse one. It says, in the beginning was the word and the word was God and the word was with God. The Greek term for word is logos. Some people say logos, but I was taught it's actually pronounced logos. And to the Greek culture, this carried the idea of all reason and of all reality, of all the rational principles that govern things. And John is talking about Jesus. We can especially see this as we look at the rest of that passage in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. In the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. And then verse 3 says, through him all things were made. Through Jesus, all things were made. So even though we can go back to Genesis chapters one and two, and we see God creating, God was creating, but he was really in a Trinitarian way creating through Jesus. Jesus was creating. We see that in the beginning, God created. And now this text, Jesus was with God and was God and Jesus created. Colossians 1.15, Jesus is the image of God. And this is language of what we call the Trinity. The Trinity means that God exists in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Each person is fully God, yet all three are one being. And we get into different metaphors of the Trinity, and I like to steer away from them because they all fail, and they all lead to things that have been heresies in church history. They can help, but they can only help so much. We use the water illustration. Water can be a liquid, a gas, and a solid. The problem with that metaphor is God the Father is, or is, as I should say, God is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, all three separate, all three together, all at the same time. Whereas when you get into certain illustrations, like you probably heard the illustration about water, a liquid, gas, a solid, it's not all three all at the same time. They go in different modes. Well, there is an early church heresy called modalism. Modalism. You don't have to remember that. It won't be on the test. But there's an article about it in the ESV Study Bible. Modalism, which taught that God just went into different modes. He went into the God mode. Then he went into the Holy Spirit mode. Then he went into Jesus mode as a heresy. No, he is always coexistent, co-eternal. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. All three God, all three separate, all three the same. At the same time. And it boggles our mind, and it should, because he's God. You've heard me share it before. C.S. Lewis writes that, uh, of course, the Trinity is difficult to understand, and that proves that this is a God thing and not a man thing. Because if we were to create a God, we would make him easy to understand, wouldn't we? If we were sitting around and talking amongst ourselves, we had 12 people and we thought, let's create some type of religion, let's create some type of a God thing, we would want to talk about it and say, "Well, well, we have to be able to understand it. No, God is awesome. He is great. He's beyond our understanding. And that's the same with the Trinity. That's the same with the Trinity. Christianity is not a polytheistic religion. Poly meaning many and theistic meaning gods. Christianity does not believe in many gods. We're not polytheistic. It's one God existing eternally in three persons. All three are one and all three are separate at the same time. Jesus' beginning was not as a baby in a manger. In Revelation chapter 22, verse 13, Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. 
Yet in Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, in chapter 21, verse 6, we have God the Father say the same exact thing. The Alpha and the Omega were the beginning and the end of the Greek alphabet. The point is that God the Father and Jesus are both saying they exist outside of time. They're the beginning and the end. That doesn't mean they have a beginning and end. It means they exist outside of time. And we have God the Father saying it. We have Jesus saying it. That's very, very, very important. When I was in college at Cedarville University, I was in a class on current religious movements, also known as cults. And one of the ones we studied was Jehovah's Witness. The Jehovah's Witness get into a heresy. It's called the Arianism heresy, but it's also, um, it, it teaches that Jesus had his beginning. And they teach that Jesus began as God in the New Testament. It's a heresy. And we watched a video based on a true story of a woman who saw Jehovah's Witness going door to door, witnessing. And she saw them coming and she got out her Bible and she prayed because she wanted to be a Christian witness to them. And she was. And eventually these Jehovah's Witness were saved. You know what scripture she went to? A few of them were those passages. Revelation chapter 22, verse 13. Revelation chapter 1, 8. And chapter 21, verse 6. Because those passages are saying God the Father and God the Son, Jesus, are both saying they're the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. So Jesus did not have his beginning in the New Testament. Jesus is coexistent, co-eternal with the Father outside of time. Always is, always shall be, always ever will be God. I want to talk about prophecies for just a moment. In Mark chapter 1, he starts out his gospel quoting Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, about John the baptizer. John the baptizer was a voice in the wilderness crying out to the people to prepare for the way of the Lord. John the baptizer was preparing the way for the Messiah. He was preparing the way for Jesus. And he was fulfilling prophecy from Isaiah and from Malachi and from the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 42, verse 6 reads this way. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. That is a prophecy about Jesus. It is a prophecy written some 700 years before Jesus. And it's a prophecy about Jesus, that God is going to send a Messiah. God is going to send a Savior. And he's going to be a light to the nations. Isaiah chapter 53 is quoted in various places in the New Testament. And it is striking how much it prophecies Jesus about the suffering servant. In fact, I was listening yesterday to Open Line, uh, Moody Radio. I was actually listening via podcast. It's on from 10 to noon every, every Saturday morning. And Dr. Michael Radelnik, a professor at Moody, answers Bible questions. And, and he was talking and, and he was asked about Isaiah chapter 53. And he shared, now, Michael Radelnik was raised an Orthodox Jew. His dad was even at Auschwitz and amazing, powerful testimony. And, and, and so he, he really, and he teaches Jewish studies and Bible. So Jewish studies is not just our Old Testament. Jewish studies is what rabbis have taught in Judaism since the New Testament as well. In 1280, 1580, 1880. You know, there's been much Jewish writings since our, even since Jesus' time. Well, around uh, in the 11th century, a certain Jewish rabbi, he, know, he, he named the name of the rabbi, switched their interpretation of Isaiah 53. Prior to 
the 11th century AD, the Middle Ages, all Jewish people recognized the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 had to do with the Messiah. They didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah, but they did believe Isaiah 53 was about the Messiah. Well, in the 11th century, because of how strikingly obvious it is, Isaiah 53 is about Jesus, in the 11th century, a certain rabbi changed it to be about Israel instead of the Messiah. But as you look at Isaiah 53, it's very clear about, about Jesus. It's very clear about what Jesus went through. By his stripes we were healed, about his beatings, about you know, his, his martyrdom, about everything. Although I shouldn't say that. He wasn't a martyr because Jesus went willingly. About, but about his crucifixion. But of course, the first prophecy about Jesus is Genesis 3.15, which was quoted just a bit ago in the service. Right after sin entered the world. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. God is looking at the serpent, which is the devil, which is Satan. And God is looking at Adam and Eve. And God says, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, which is Eve. And between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. He is the Messiah, Jesus. But you shall bruise his heel. Sin had just entered the world. And Jesus came to conquer the consequence of sin. God had a plan from the beginning. Satan never takes God by surprise. God's plan was that this Jesus, who existed outside of time and exists still outside of time, coexistent, co-eternal with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, this Jesus would come and be born in a manger. He would grow up and live a sinless life and then die on the cross for our sins. In the Old Testament, Jesus was a gift still to come. They were waiting on him to come. They were waiting on the Savior, the Savior to come. He was active in creation, but they were waiting on salvation. They were waiting on the Savior, the Messiah. He hadn't come and taken the form of a man yet. The blood of bulls and goats in the Old Testament, they were just called types. They were pointing to the ultimate sacrifice, which was Jesus. Now he has come. What is your view of Jesus? Do you view Jesus as six pounds, 18 ounces? I meant that kind of punny, because aren't there 18 ounces in a pound? Somebody correct me who's better with math. 16, see, there are no such thing. Good. I was just testing you when I wrote that. Do you view him as just a baby in a manger? Do you think of Jesus as the little baby? Do you think of Jesus as a man who walked with the disciples through three years of ministry? Do you think of Jesus as the carpenter? Maybe you do think of Jesus as the man hanging on the cross. Yes, Jesus came as a baby, but he no longer is a baby. Yes, Jesus worked as a carpenter, but he no longer is a carpenter. Yes, Jesus walked with his disciples, but not in that way anymore. Yes, Jesus hung on the cross, but he died and rose again. Jesus is no longer dead. We don't serve a dead Savior. We serve a risen Savior. And I don't mean to minimize his earthly life. Jesus lived a fully human life. And I believe he, the Bible teaches he still has a fully human body, fully human and fully God right now. I simply want us to think of Jesus as Lord of heaven and earth. 
Next week's sermon will be about Jesus as fully human and fully God and why that matters. Why did Jesus have to be fully human and fully God to be the perfect sacrifice for our sins? That'll be next week. In three weeks, a sermon will be about Jesus reigning with God in heaven. A mother was having a gathering to celebrate the birth of her newborn son. She invited a bunch of friends over to celebrate his arrival. She welcomed her guests and they all had a great time celebrating, eating and drinking and having fun. After a while, one of the ladies said, well, bring the baby out. Let's see the baby. The mother went to get the baby from his crib. He was nowhere to be found. She started to panic and feel fearful. Suddenly, she remembered that the baby was still at her parents' house where she had left him that morning. She and the guests had been having so much fun, they had forgotten what the party was about. During the Christmas season, many times we get busy with celebration and we forget that the birth of Jesus Christ is the reason for the season. We've talked about Jesus. We've talked about who Jesus is. Jesus wants to be deeply involved in your life. Do you realize that? He wants to be deeply involved in all of our lives. Deeply involved. The other day we were driving and one of my daughters said, where are we going? And I began to sing the Simon and Garfunkel song, Homeward Bound, we're going home, right? You know the song, Homeward Bound, I wish I was, Homeward Bound, Homeward My Thoughts Escaping, Homeward My Music's Playing, Homeward My Love Life's Waiting Silently For Me. That made me think of other uh, Simon and Garfunkel songs, which I'm sure are not new to you. And there was one titled, I Am a Rock, A Winter's Day in a Deep and Dark December. I am alone, gazing from my window to the streets below, on a freshly fallen silent shroud of snow. I'm a rock. I'm an island. I built walls. I'm not going to sing it, okay? Just, you know. I built walls, a fortress deep and mighty that none may penetrate. I have no need of friendship. Friendship causes pain. It's laughter and it's loving I disdain. I'm a rock. I'm an island. Don't talk of love. Well, I've heard the word before. Is sleeping in my memory. It won't disturb the slumber of feelings that have died. If I never loved, I never would have cried. Wow, think of those words. I'm a rock, I'm an island. I have my books and my poetry to protect me. I'm shielded in my armor, hiding in my room, safe within my womb. I touch no one and no one touches me. I'm a rock, I'm an island, and a rock feels no pain, and an island never cries. Such a catchy song, but not the Christian way. We've talked about Jesus. Jesus wants to be there for us. Jesus wants to be our rock. Psalm 18 talks about God being our rock. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 talks about Jesus being our rock. Jesus does not want us to isolate ourselves. He doesn't want us to be an island. He wants us to be with other people in the church family, and Jesus wants us to be, to, to be leaning on him, to be close to him. So this week, as we close this service here in a moment, I invite you to go, but I invite you to go with Jesus. Walk with Jesus. 
We walk with Jesus through spiritual disciplines. Spend time in the word this week. Spend time in your Bibles this week. A chapter a day keeps the pastor away, but you're still welcome to call me if you have any questions. Spend time in the Bible this week. Spend time in prayer this week. Spend time in silence this week. Spend time with your church family this week. Spend time with the Lord. Go, but be with Jesus. Jesus is God incarnate. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. He came to be with us. He came so we could have a relationship with us. And he wants, he really does want and desire a relationship with you and me and everyone. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dearly Father, I just ask, Lord God, that as we close this sermon, that it's a reminder for all of us, it's a reminder to all of us, that you want us to be close to you. And you want to be close to us. And you're reaching out to us. You're reaching out to us through this Advent season, through this Christmas season, to draw close to you. You're reaching out to us to come. You're standing at the door knocking, inviting us to repent of sin and turn to you. And Lord God, if there's anyone gathered here today who does not know you as Lord and Savior, may today be the day to confess they're a sinner in need of a Savior, to believe in you as the one and only Savior, to trust in you and commit to you. To confess, to believe, to trust and commit. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but shall inherit everlasting life. In John 3, 16 and John 14, 16, you are the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to Father except by you. Lord Jesus, help us to come to you. And for those of you, for those gathered here today, maybe us strayed from you, may today be the day they come back to you. And we know you are there to take us back. And you wanna walk with us, walk beside us, walk close to us. You want to carry us through the storms of life. You do. I know you do. Your word teaches us. You want to be our our rock. So, Lord God, I pray you'll be with us as we close this service. In Jesus' name, amen.